Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Whitney Lockenbauer about the history of JAWS, the joint Arctic weather stations established and maintained by the U.S. and Canadian governments in the early post-war decades. Whitney is a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in the Study of the Canadian North and a professor in the School for the Study of Canada and the Department of History at Trent University. He is one of Canada's foremost experts on both Arctic history and contemporary issues concerning Arctic security and international relations in the region. He is the co-author with Daniel Haidt of The Joint Arctic Weather Stations, Science and Sovereignty in the High Arctic, 1946-1972. This was published as part of the University of Calgary Press's Northern Light series. Whitney, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Well, great to be on the program, Greg. first glance, the subject of this book appears a little obscure. So what led you and Daniel to decide to research and write this book in the first place? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I mean, for those of us who do Arctic sovereignty and security history, maybe Jaws isn't obscure, but I understand from a Canadian historiography more broadly to focus on this really unique binational Canada-US relationship in the high Arctic in the post-war period does seem like a, a small little almost micro history. But I was really inspired to look at it by a lot of the literature that has come out trying to make sense of the Canada-US balance over sovereignty and how that related to security in the, the early Cold War and actually throughout the Cold War. And a lot of this in its, in its germination was actually a response to a dear friend and mentor of mine, Sheila Grant, who wrote a classic book in the late 1980s asking the question, was it sovereignty or security that Canada secured through its relationships with the U.S.? And my research began to suggest that, in fact, we got both. So, in essence, it started as a bit of a revisionist history responding to Sheila Grant's characterization of this relationship, and then meeting up with Daniel Haidt, who at the time was a graduate student of mine in the late 2000s, him beginning to pursue this during his doctoral studies on federalism in Ontario, like nothing to do with the Arctic, and us both realizing there was a book here, but then realizing quickly that just focusing on the sovereignty aspect, the sort of elite political side, was actually missing a lot of the story. And by stretching the story of Jaws from its origins in the mid-1940s through to the late to, through to the early 1970s, actually changed the whole nature of how we understood this relationship and in turn, how we, how we situated this experience between Canadians and Americans. So let's start with JAWS. What was it? Why was it established? How long did it exist? So it actually came about at the end of the Second World War. During that war, the importance of meteorology, so the science of weather, was really amplified. It was absolutely essential, for example, for the Canadians and their, the other allies launching the D-Day invasions on Normandy, really dependent in June of 1944 upon weather. And weather systems truly global in their reach. So there was almost like a weather war that went on during the Second World War, competing to set up weather stations further and further north, certainly on Greenland, uh, Spitsbergen, Svalbard Archipelago, part of Norway, for example, during the war. So it established the benefits of having weather stations set up all throughout the circumpolar north. The big gap 
was actually in the Canadian Arctic, the Arctic Archipelago. So those islands that stretch north of the Canadian landmass up towards the North Pole. So by 1945-1946, the Americans began to identify the benefits of going and actually increasing meteorological knowledge from the high Arctic, not just for defense purposes, in fact, for civilian purposes, that having a better understanding of weather dynamics in the Arctic would lead to better modeling so farmers could predict temperature changes that would affect their crops. So a whole series of applications of going and going and actually gathering information, not for the purposes of understanding the Arctic in itself. In fact, understanding the Arctic as a way to inform broader global models. So this in turn led to this unique arrangement where Canada and the U.S. would partner up to set up these very austere stations, literally further north than any even Inuit settlements were at that particular time. Historically, the Inuit and their ancestors had been throughout the Arctic islands. Right. But by this point, they'd actually pulled further south owing to climactic changes. So this really was a really pioneering effort to go into that part of the Arctic and work together to figure out how you could gather this essential data for truly tackling a continental and then global challenge set. So just describe the locations of the five joint Arctic weather stations. So it's interesting. They actually ended up being different locations than were originally planned. We need to remember that even in the era of high modernism, as we have, you know, modern icebreakers and aircraft being able to transport things north, there were challenges to getting to some of the original designated sites, which led to the five that were ultimately uh, consolidated and established. So we have uh, Alert, which is still in operation today. Now it's a Canadian forces station at the high northern tip of Ellesmere Islands, just about as far north as you can go in Canada, and still very valuable in collecting electronic signal intelligence. So if you go up to Alert as I've been, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures of which way the antenna on the top of the station are actually facing, because that would give away who we're listening to. <laughs> um, so really interesting. Uh, we have Eureka, which is still in operation now as a broader site to support scientists working in the high Arctic, Resolute Bay or Kausuituk, now our second northernmost Inuit community in Canada, but actually had its origins as one of these weather stations in 1947, um, which is kind of interesting. It would be, there'd be relocations of Inuit from northern Quebec and Pond Inlet or northern Baffin Island up to Resolute in the early 1950s, but actually after Canada had already established its official footprint through this weather station, There's also Isaacson, so this is northwest of Resolute, Um, and then Mold Bay, the westernmost of these sites on Prince Patrick Island, really an austere location, had only visited, been visited by a couple of explorers, at least Euro-Canadian explorers, before the, the weather station was established there. So really spread out across our high Arctic islands in Canada, trying to maximize the coverage from east to west, but also as north as could possibly be imagined, while still remaining on the continent of North America. Your history is really a fascinating look at this initiative from above, uh, from the perspective of the two countries that created it, but it's also looking at it from the perspective below, from those who worked in the stations day after day. So what insights were you able to achieve bringing these two very different perspectives together? So I think even in terms of the perspectives, I'd say as, as many historians do, or at least trained as a political historian, diplomatic military historian as, as I am, going into the archives 
and pulling as much as we could about the discussions, the diplomatic debates, the entanglement between Canada and the U.S. in actually creating these stations, the negotiations often tenuous to bring them to fruition. Um, but realizing that as we went along, this was only part of the story, that to understand the nature of Canadian-American relations that was going on in and around these stations was not just at the high civil servant level or the political level, it was going on in the stations themselves because these were uniquely created to be truly jointly run, the joint part of joint Arctic weather stations, with an equal number of American and Canadians at each of these sites. So through a series of marvelous oral history interviews that Dan Height did with many individuals who self-identified as JAWS veterans, it's interesting, they were civilians actually, not military personnel, but they consider themselves veterans of this, this form of service, they enriched our understandings, really deepened our understandings by bringing it down to the ground and explaining what it was like at the stations themselves. And what I think it did was demystified the notion that we often think about international relations at the level of diplomacy or politics. It also goes on at the very human level in these really small isolated outposts where people had a strong vested interest in figuring out ways of getting along. And what we came to discover was the Can-Am sort of national tension was most often not the central factor playing out on the ground. It was going to be personalities. It was going to be boredom. It was going to be a lot of other things that may, we, we may wish to talk about here that actually informs our understanding. And at the end of the day, I think by having this conversation between different types of sources, oral histories, station diaries, high-level political correspondence, it really encouraged us to rethink the ways that we conceptualize Canada-U.S. relations and not forget about those people-to-people -people relationships that really are some of the strongest sinews connecting our countries. And in turn, have got us to really question some of the assumptions that are well-established in the literature about this as a prime example of tensions over sovereignty between Canada and the U.S., Part of it suggests that, yes, if we focus too early on and just fixate on the early origins when some of those sovereignty questions were front and center, and if we only listen to elite political voices, we're going to miss that the real story here is one of cooperation. And probably reading into this, you can sense this is an overarching narrative that people like myself and Greg Dunahy and others have established within the literature to suggest that generally it's been more of a harmonious Canada-U.S. relationship than some of the historiography, than some of the historical writing might intimate if we're only focusing on the pol politics around those points of tension. Quietly, over a period of decades, we actually had quite accommodating, quite cooperative, and very collaborative relationships towards a common purpose. Well, given that, let me ask a follow-on question. Why did Prime Minister Mackenzie King and his cabinet insist on treating JAWS as a defense project when, as you point out throughout the book, it was primarily a civilian project? It's interesting. So this was, this was an epiphany moment, one of those wonderful aha moments we sometimes have as historians that actually came very late into the book writing process. Because we, Dan and I had really sort of fixated on what had become a commentary around the notion that the Canadian government, especially Mackenzie King, wanted to place as many Arctic activities under civilian cover, as he called it. We put the kind of put that in bunny ears, scare quotes, you know, for civilian cover to avoid attracting attention, particularly from competitors globally, the Soviet Union, and having us fully sort of pulled into the Cold War that was taking shape at that particular time. 
my, by McKenzie King conceptualizing this and wrapping this up with a whole bunch of requests coming from the Americans in late 45, 46, early 47 for a series of defense projects in the Arctic, it sort of fit with Canada's anxiety that somehow this onslaught of American interest in the Canadian Arctic would whether consciously or unconsciously, suddenly undermine Canadian sovereignty. What we found really interesting was that the progenitors from the U.S. side of this project were actually much more of the civilian orientation. It was coming out of the Second World War, so everybody had connections to the military. Everybody had military service. People had been involved in military projects. But the way this was being conceived in the U.S. and sold was very much as a U.S. Weather Bureau initiative. But from a Canadian standpoint, the inability to distinguish that from the whole U.S. military, industrial, eventually academic complex was really hard for the Canadian mind to disentangle. So we think that this is actually highly significant and perhaps even resonates a bit today when we have to be really careful to, to almost test our assumptions and think about what frames we're applying and how we're grouping together our concerns under what umbrella. That's right. And one of those Americans was Charles Hubbard. It seems like a fascinating character who was the primary promoter of the Arctic weather stations. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Oh, absolutely. Fascinating guy. He had been captain of the Harvard football team in his early days, uh, went and sort of fluctuated, flip-flopped back between the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy during the Second World War and had been tasked with helping to set up some of the weather stations and installations in Greenland in particular during the war. So as he was looking already from 1944 onward to a life returning to the civilian world and a life after the war, after military service, he hatched up this idea of a big Arctic operations or ARCTOPS project in affiliation with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and came up with this plan that ultimately spoke to the joint Arctic weather stations. Now, at that time, they weren't necessarily going to be joint. In his mind, this was something the U.S. would have been happy to just lead and, and pursue. But he worked and sort of was spellbinding his connections with Senator Brewster of Maine, working within the U.S. establishment, but then also, in a very off-putting way, decided to be his own individual diplomat going off to Ottawa, and when didn't get what he wanted from Canadian officials, threatened that maybe if Canada wasn't going to play, they just, the U.S. would just go and find their own islands and claim them as American and do it themselves. This actually ended up delaying the project by an entire year, and I think a lot of the, the finger-pointing actually goes back to Charlie Hubbard, was fascinating in that his wife had actually suggested after the fact that this was maybe a good thing because as Charles put it, right, it gave them a time to get their plans a little more consolidated and allowed them to actually pursue this on a sounder foundation. So he really was super active in setting these five stations up, in securing the support from the U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force to actually support the logistics of building the stations and sustaining the stations. So run by the U.S. Weather Bureau in partnership with Canadian Meteorological Service, but then supported by the military. So as I said before, a civilian program that's still supported logistically by the military. This was Hubbard's connections. This was his mastery. Unfortunately, tragic end in that he's lost his life when a plane that he was on uh, going up to do a resupply mission to alert tragically crashed in 1950. And certainly he was, he was buried up there with the rest of the people whose, whose lives were taken in that tragic event and still go up there and visit his grave site. And it was interesting because his wife, um, had later said the reason he wasn't buried south and flown south was because there was problems with the aircraft that was sent up to actually go and recover the bodies and take them south. She actually said he would have wanted to have been buried right there in the Arctic, which is where his heart was. Yeah. 
But definitely, if there's anybody in the audience who's looking for a biography that they would like to write, mm-hmm. you know, about a fascinating American with connections to Canada, Charles Hubbard is a, is a really fascinating fellow. Well, by 1950, when Charles Hubbard died, five stations had been erected. Now, this was fewer than uh, had been slated from the original plan. Why was it restricted to five stations and what impact did restricting it to these five stations have ultimately? Yeah, another great question. I mean, like so much of Canadian contemporary history, it comes down to money. I mean, it was resources. You know, for the United States, we often think about the U.S. as being the hegemon with infinite resources to project, you know, send out its tentacles all throughout the world and kind of do whatever it wants. The U.S. faces budgetary pressures like everybody else. So by 1950, it was clear that this program was costing a lot of money. And in a world of competing priorities, this just didn't make the cut. In the case of Canada, we did go in and fill in, if you will, some of the gaps that were left by not creating more joint Arctic weather stations by setting up Canadian weather stations. So for example, at Saks Harbor uh, on Banks Island. So if you think the westernmost part of Canada's Arctic islands, you know, just north of Tuktoyuktuk and north of the Yukon and, and Northwest Territories out in the far west, we ended up setting up a station that was, we don't write about in the book, but was often considered almost a sister station to JAWS, except it was entirely Canadian run. And that was Again, Canada wasn't going to push too hard to see an expansion of JAWS as well if this meant that it was going to exceed our capacity to be able to fund the stations we'd already committed to and especially provide the human resources. One of the pieces that really came strong out of this story was as much as some Canadian political leaders and even senior civil servants would have loved for Canada to Canadianize, as they said, make Canadian these joint stations, have us take over control. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the logistics support, but especially we did not have the trained personnel to go it on our own. So instead, by having JAWS continue as this joint arrangement with the U.S., Canada could focus its efforts on setting up its own weather stations further to the south. So I don't think that the failure to to really create that initial image or footprint ended up having a negative impact on the ability to conduct important meteorological research in the north but it kind of worked in harmony then with Canada being able to dedicate its resources elsewhere, which again speaks to me to another interesting dynamic in how we look at our relationship with the United States. We often sometimes look at it as a threat. As a challenger, we can also look at it as an enabler, that by going and sharing the burden on some priorities allows us to focus our unilateral efforts, our single you know, direct efforts on other projects um, in a more deliberate way. Well, Whitney, as our witness to yesterday, take us back to the early 1950s and what we could have expected to see, smell, and hear in one of these stations. I always find these things challenging because I think I'm a historian with the with the uh, the evidence in front of me because I maybe lack the imagination of the wonderful literary historical <laughs> narrators that are out there. But I'll try my best. It would depend very much on the time of year, first of all. And, and that which is, I think, very telling. But if we're taking it at this time of the year, mm-hmm. say back in the early 1950s at a site. In, in, in other words, let's say winter. <laughs> let's say winter. You've got it. The long Canadian winter. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is far above the Arctic Circle. So meaning we're talking perpetual darkness, right? Land uh, of no midnight sun at this time of year, the complete opposite. So you're getting up. It's probably really cold, right? Certainly looking not like it is right now in Ontario with very little snow on the ground, right? Everything would be snow covered. 
you would wake up, depending on your role in the morning, you might go to the radio if you're a radio technician. If you're the cook, you're maybe getting breakfast together. If you're perhaps the team of meteorological technicians, you're going off, you're getting on your cold weather gear, you're walking out of the accommodation building, which also had the kitchen in it, and you're walking across and going into another building, the Raywinson building, which was a separate, small little red, often red, sort of um, orangey red painted building with a big dome, almost like a bubble on top. Um, <laughs> and inside of that, you'd be inflating a balloon to do high atmospheric readings. One person would be filling it. They would then have to go back outside in the frigid cold, release that balloon, which would rise up to 70,000 feet before it would pop. After doing that, they'd run back inside. The other Met tech would be up recording from the transmitter on that balloon as it went north, what altitude things were at and a whole bunch of other readings in terms of barometric pressure and stuff like that. This in turn be recorded. Once this was done, it would verify what was called the run. This would then, they'd waltz back inside, go to the radio technician. He would then go and transmit, if it was one of the satellite stations, would transmit this data back to Resolute Bay, the main station. In turn, the radio technician there would transmit it back to Southern Canada and on, onward to the rest of the world. This was done twice a day with these releases. In between, you'd also be doing land-based readings of temperature. You might be doing SIPRI snow samples going on and a whole bunch of other activities. But during that day, what would you be looking forward to? Hopefully, if you had a good cook at your station, right, you'd be looking forward to some fantastic meals. Huge part of a lot of the narratives and stories we heard was the importance of a good meal. And those of us who've done Northern field work, you really come to appreciate, you know, good food, and certainly no expense was, was spared in making sure that these people had access to really good food insofar as that was possible. At the same time, during the downtime in your day, trying to come up with leisure activities. Maybe it was pool. Maybe it was reading books that were in the station library that you might have already read five times. Or doing you know, movies that had been sent up six months before and you got so bored by the end you'd figured out how to run them backwards just to see something different. <laughs> Anything to, to quell some of the boredom as well during those long, dark winters. But, uh, but again, really interesting stories, especially from these JAWS veterans themselves of tech techniques and ways of coping, you know, in that dark period, but at the same time, incredible pride in going out and capturing these readings with a high degree of reliability, problem solving when environmental conditions didn't work out as one expected and making sure you were delivering on par with everybody else around the planet so that you could contribute to this scientific project of coming up with better meteorological modeling. So in the summers, you were resupplied. Uh, you also would have contingents of other people coming in, other scientists and that sort of thing. There would be just a great deal of activity in that short, short Arctic summer. What was the impact on that in terms of the staff? I mean, how did they react to that higher level of activity? Yes, it was a fascinating, again, other, another unexpected part of the story. So on the one hand, you've got enthusiasm after you've been with this same group of, say, you know, six other people at a station for a six-month period, definitely welcoming some different faces and often welcoming the fact that they were scientists of a different breed. So these were meteorological technicians. They weren't 
people with university degrees who are actually working at these weather stations. Many of them went on to university degrees. Very distinguished geographers like Peter Johnson of the University of Ottawa and others came out of their JAWS experience and went on to to advanced degrees. But having these scientists come up and share with them their scientific practices was obviously something very, very interesting, not to mention a whole bunch of other hobbies and, and skills they would bring. So from that standpoint, it was welcomed. On the other hand, it meant a lot more bodies in a pretty confined space as long as these people were at the stations, which taxed resources to be certain. And amidst the daily routine, then you have all this compounding factor of all these other people um, coming in. So what we did not expected to see were some of these tensions associated with these stations being set up, again, primary purpose being weather stations to gather meteorological data, but also serving as incredibly important hubs for scientists, eventually exploration from private sector companies and that to use these as ways to, to collect geomorphological data or data on caribou or data on snow conditions or to work on the polar continental shelf project out of these little hubs, um, which was quite fascinating. So a mix, like so much of life, of a bit of the good and a bit of the bad. And so much of the story was like that, where people were reflecting back on these memories and it was a bit of both. So leadership and smooth relationships are always quite critical in the effective uh, functioning of a group of isolated individuals who have to live at such close quarters for so long. What were some of the key challenges you discovered doing this history? Yeah, interestingly, we we had gone in, maybe I'll, I'll just say that we had thought there would be more of a key challenge relating to the fact that the officer in charge was a Canadian and the executive officer, sort of the second in command, was an American. Mm-hmm. That required some balancing, but for the most part, that didn't represent a tremendous tension. In fact, it was often the case that because of personnel constraints, the Canadian was more junior than the American. So the experience that the American executive officer would actually bring was absolutely critical to the team. And there'd be a mutual respect where the Canadian might be the head of the hierarchy on paper, but in practical purposes, right? It was whoever, and this very much fits with a lot of Arctic history, to whoever had the practical skills or the knowledge who was the best person to, to provide that sort of functional leadership part. So that was key. We do have some stories of individuals, one in particular, who came up with far too military of a mindset, or at least that's how it was perceived by the JAWS personnel. This individual had had a distinguished career, had done lots of pretty remarkable things with exercise muskox in 1946 and involvement at Churchill, but basically almost got drummed out of the station that he was sent to because he was seen as being too domineering. So one of the things we found really fascinating was that it was about leadership more than it was about command styles. It was about individuals with the soft skills, what we now might call, um, you know, emotional intelligence, EQ type things, and, and how significant that was to actually maintaining a sense of, of compatibility at the stations to really building up a sense of camaraderie and to motivating people, again, where there's a lot of challenges associated with boredom and low times, but also overcoming adverse conditions, as is the case when you're in the North and dealing with a lot of adversity and challenging environmental conditions or mail not being able to get through for months on end, which, again, takes its psychological toll, certainly drains morale. The importance of having somebody who could relate to a very diverse group of people and not come off as thinking that he was the high and mighty. And I say he, a gendered language, because during this whole period of, of the joint Arctic weather stations, it was only men who were in these, in these stations as well, which was an interesting dynamic. But having to be very mindful of not only the diversity of who was with you, 
but not wanting to then come off as being too dictatorial. Certainly those hard styles of command authority did not play out well for what we saw. No, and, and it struck me that it, it'd be defined as kind of a servant leadership almost in today's terms. But, uh, well, tell us, why was JAWS shut down in the end? And what, in your opinion, is the long-term legacy of JAWS? So again, we went in thinking that the fact that JAWS was shut down, the kind of the announcement made in 1970 and the last withdrawal from the final station by the Americans in 1972 had to deal with sovereignty issues. So some listeners might be aware, 1969, 1970, there was a U.S. humble oil project sending a big ice strength and super taker called the Manhattan through the Northwest Passage. And as the Americans are apt to do, they said, the Northwest Passage, these waters winding their way through Canada's Arctic Islands, are an international strait. They, con they connect two oceans. So the U.S. says that it has the right to transit those waters without having to ask Canadian permission, like they do any international strait on the planet. Canada, not very confidently and very ambiguously at that time, said, wait, these are Canadian waters. So there was a real crisis of sovereignty during Pierre Elliott Trudeau's gov first government in 69-70. What we found interesting is we thought that this maybe influenced, you know, booting the Americans out. Turns out it had nothing at all to do with what happened. Beginning in 1967, Canada took what had been, by this point, a Canadianization of the resupply of these stations by the Canadian military, particularly the Royal Canadian Air Force, and decided to civilianize the resupply, the logistics. This was going to drive up the costs for the Americans per year of about $40,000, I think it was. So the U.S. looked at this. They were facing fiscal constraints, a period of austerity in the U.S., and they decided, look, this is heading in the wrong direction. By 1970, they decided this is too costly. Canada is a wealthy enough country. It can do this on its own. We're going to pull out because we want to save the bucks, and it's up to Canada to go and take these over. And in turn, that's exactly what happened. So in a series of staged, sort of phased in between 1970 and 1972, the Americans withdrew from the program, not with a sense of malice, with certainly no hostility, we had to work out arrangements so they could leave behind some of the technologies that we were dependent on, upon them for. And we certainly lost some valuable skill sets from the Americans that we had to replace ourselves as Canadians. But at the end of the day, it was a very amicable withdrawal. And after this 25-year experiment, right, it really signaled the possibilities of how you can do these binational initiatives, enterprises, in actually a very collaborative way, and certainly in a way that did not lead to an erosion of Canadian sovereignty. I think it actually bolstered Canadian sovereignty. So the legacy was Canada took over these stations. We rebranded them the High Arctic Weather Stations. Some of them are still in operation you know, today, some have been basically left. And when I mean left, abandoned, you can still go there in the coffee mugs with the, I can't even imagine the state of the coffee, right, are still sitting on the counters. The magazines are still open on some of the tables. And dare I say, I'm sure in some of the filing cabinets, some of the long lost station diaries and reports that Dan and I would have loved to have got our hands on are probably still there, you know, probably not rotting because of the wonderful <laughs> crisp Arctic desert air. Um, but are still up there. The long-term legacy, you know, really was, I think, from a, from a historian's standpoint, to me, it's quite a remarkable case study in, in looking at this glimpse of how Canada and the U.S. work together over quite a sustained period of time on, yes, what is avowedly a modest project. 
but to show how really it was a spirit of compromise and collaboration and cooperation that ultimately prevailed. And while we're so often predisposed to look to those moments, you know, where it's President Johnson shaking, you know, Lester Pearson by his lapel out on his deck saying, you, you know, peed on my rug sort of moments, that it's actually often a lot of these quieter, and especially if we stretch our timeframes and look beyond the episodic and look across a period of time and, and map out these relationships, that we really get a different story. And in this mind, a, a story of resilience by both Canadians and Americans who served at these stations, and I'd say also a, a tribute to those Canadians who continue to serve in various scientific capacities in the North, including, you know, meteorologically at, at some of these austere sites. So some of them are still in operation. They're an obvious continuing ongoing legacy and perpetuation of the story. In other cases, right, they're sitting there empty as these sites of curiosity that I wish I could return to. <laughs> Well, Whitney, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this most interesting program in Canada's past. Thanks, Greg. My pleasure. My guest today was Whitney Lockenbauer, the author of the Joint Arctic Weather Station, Science and Sovereignty in the High Arctic, 1946 to 1972, published by the University of Calgary Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on January 10th, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team.